Section 16 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Thomas Jefferson, Part 1. 1743 to 1826. Popular Sovereignty. This illustrious statesman was born April 13, 1743, at Shadwell, his father's home among the mountains of central Virginia, about 150 miles from Williamsburg. His father, Peter Jefferson, did not belong to the patrician class, as the great planters called themselves, but he owned a farm of 1,900 acres, cultivated by 30 slaves, and raised wheat. What aristocratic blood flowed in young Jefferson's veins came from his mother, who was a Randolph, of fine presence and noble character. At 17, the youth entered the College of William and Mary at Williamsburg, after having been imperfectly fitted at a school kept by a Mr. Morey, an Episcopal clergyman. He was a fine-looking boy, ruddy and healthy, with no bad habits, disposed to improve his mind, which was naturally inquisitive, and having the entree into the good society of the college town. Williamsburg was also the seat of government for the province, where were collected for a few months in the year the prominent men of Virginia, as members of the House of Burgesses. In this attractive town, Jefferson spent seven years, two in the college, studying the classics, history, and mathematics, for which he had an aptitude, and five in the law office of George Wythe, thus obtaining as good an education as was possible in those times. He amused himself by playing on a violin, dancing in gay society, riding fiery horses, and going to the races. Although he was far from rich, he had as much money as was good for him, and he turned it to good advantage, laying the foundation of an admirable library. He cultivated the society of the brightest people. Among these were John Page, afterwards governor of Virginia, Dr. Small, the professor of mathematics at the college, afterwards the friend of Darwin at Birmingham, Edmund Randolph, a historic Virginian, Francis Fauquier, the lieutenant governor of the province, said to be a fine scholar and elegant gentleman of the French school, who introduced into Virginia the writings of Voltaire, Rousseau, and Diderot, as well as high play at cards, George Wythe, a rising lawyer of great abilities, John Burke, the historian of Virginia, and lastly Patrick Henry, rough, jolly, and lazy. From such associates, all distinguished sooner or later, Jefferson learned much of society, of life, and literature. At college, as in after life, his forte was writing. Jefferson never, to his dying day, could make a speech. He could talk well in a small circle of admirers and friends, and he held the readiest pen in America, but he had no eloquence as a speaker, which I think is a gift like poetry, seldom to be acquired. And yet he was a great admirer of eloquence, without envy and without any attempts at imitation. A constant reader, studious, reflective, inquisitive, liberal-minded, slightly visionary, in love with novelties and theories, the young man grew up, a universal favorite both for his accomplishments and his almost feminine gentleness of temper, which made him averse to anything like personal quarrels. I do not read that he ever persistently and cordially hated and abused but one man, the greatest political genius this country has ever known, and hated even him rather from divergence of political views than from personal resentment. As Jefferson had no landed property sufficiently large to warrant his leading the life of a leisurely country gentleman, the highest aspiration of a Virginian aristocrat in the period of entailed estates, it was necessary for him to choose a profession, and only that of a lawyer could be thought of by a free-thinking politician, for such he was from first to last. Indeed, politics ever have been the native air which southern gentlemen have breathed for more than a century. Since political power, amid such social distinctions and inequalities as have existed in the southern states, necessarily has been confined to the small class, the southern people have always been ruled by a few political leaders, 
more influential and perhaps more accomplished than any corresponding class at the north certainly they have made more pretensions being more independent in their circumstances and many of them educated abroad as are the leaders in south american states at the present day the heir to ten thousand or twenty thousand acres with two hundred negroes in the last century naturally cultivated those sentiments which were common to great landed proprietors in england especially pride of birth it is remarkable that jefferson with his surroundings should have been so early and so far advanced in his opinions about the rights of man and political equality but then he was by birth only halfway between the poor whites and the patrician planters moreover he was steeped in the philosophy of rousseau having sentimental proclivities and a leaning to humanitarian theories both political and social jefferson was admitted to the bar in seventeen sixty seven after five years in wythe's office he commenced his practice at a favorable time for a lawyer in a period of great financial embarrassments on the part of the planters arising from their extravagant and ostentatious way of living they lived on their capital rather than on their earnings and even their broad domains were nearly exhausted by the culture of tobacco the chief staple of virginia which also had declined in value it was almost impossible for an ordinary planter to make two ends meet no matter how many acres he cultivated and how many slaves he possessed for he had inherited expensive tastes a liking for big houses and costly furniture and blooded horses and he knew not where to retrench his pride prevented him from economy since he was socially compelled to keep tavern for visitors and poor relations without compensation hence nearly all the plantations were heavily encumbered whether great or small the planter disdained manual labor however poor he might be and every year added to his debts he lived in comparative idleness amusing himself with horse races hunting and other manly sports such as become country gentlemen in the olden time the real poverty of virginia was seen in the extreme difficulty of raising troops for state or national defense in times of greatest peril the calls of patriotism were not unheeded by the chivalry of the south but what could patriotic gentlemen do when their estates were wasting away by litigation and unsuccessful farming it was amid such surroundings that jefferson began his career although he could not make a speech could hardly address a jury he had sixty-eight cases the first year of his practice one hundred and fifteen the second one hundred and ninety-eight the third he was doubtless a good lawyer but not a remarkable one law business not being to his taste when he had practiced seven years in the general court his cases had dropped to twenty-nine but his office business had increased so as to give him an income of four hundred pounds from his profession and he received as much more from his estate which had swelled to nearly two thousand acres his industry his temperance his methodical ways his frugality and his legal research had been well rewarded while not a great lawyer he must have been a studious one for his legal learning was a large element in his future success at the age of thirty-one he was a prominent citizen a good office lawyer and a rising man with the confidence and respect of every one who knew him and withal exceedingly popular from his plain manners his modest pretensions and patriotic zeal he was not then a particularly marked man but was on the road to distinction since a new field was open to him that of politics for which he had an undoubted genius the distracted state of the country on the verge of war with great britain called out his best energies while yet but a boy in college he became deeply interested in the murmurings of virginia gentlemen against english misgovernment in the colonies and early became known as a vigorous thinker and writer with republican tendencies william wart wrote of him that he was a republican and a philanthropist from the earliest dawn of his character he entered upon the stormy scene of politics with remarkable zeal and his great abilities for this arena were rapidly developed 
Jefferson's political career really dates from 1769, when he entered the House of Burgesses as member for Albemarle County in the second year of his practice as a lawyer, after a personal canvass of nearly every voter in the county, and supplying to the voters, as was the custom, an unlimited quantity of punch and lunch for three days. The assembly was composed of about 100 members, gentlemen of course, among whom was Colonel George Washington. The speaker was Peyton Randolph, a most courteous aristocrat, with great ability for the duties of a presiding officer. Among other prominent members were Mr. Pendleton, Colonel Bland, and Mr. Nicholas, leading lawyers of the province. Mr. Jefferson, though still a young man, was put upon important committees, for he had a good business head and was ready with his pen. In 1772, Mr. Jefferson married a rich widow, who brought him 40,000 acres and 135 slaves, so that he now took his place among the wealthy planters, although, like Washington, he was only a yeoman by birth. With increase of fortune, he built Monticello on the site of Shadwell, which had been burned. It was on the summit of a hill 500 feet high, about three miles from Charlottesville, but it was only by 25 years' ceaseless nursing and improvement that this mansion became the finest residence in Virginia, with its lawns, its flower beds, its walks, and its groves, adorned with perhaps the finest private library in America. No wonder he loved this enchanting abode, where he led the life of a philosopher. But stirring events soon called him from this retreat. A British war vessel in Narragansett Bay, in pursuit of a packet which had left Newport for Providence without permission, ran aground about seventeen miles from the latter town, and was burned by disguised Yankee citizens, indignant at the outrages which had been perpetrated by this armed schooner on American commerce. A reward of five hundred pounds was offered for the discovery of the perpetrators, and the English government, pronouncing this to be an act of high treason, passed an ordinance that the persons implicated in the act should be transported to England for trial. This decree struck at the root of American liberties and aroused an indignation which reached the Virginian legislature, then assembled at Williamsburg. A committee was appointed to investigate the affair, composed of Peyton Randolph, R.C. Nicholas, Richard Henry Lee, Benjamin Harrison, Edmund Pendleton, Patrick Henry, and Thomas Jefferson, all now historic names, mostly lawyers, but representatives of the prominent families of Virginia and leaders of the assembly. Indignant resolutions were offered, and copies were sent to the various colonial legislatures. This is the first notice of Jefferson in his political career. In 1773, with Patrick Henry and some others, Jefferson originated the Committee of Correspondence, which was the beginning of the intimate relations and common political interest among the colonies. In 1774, the House of Burgesses was twice dissolved by the royal governor, and Jefferson was a member of the convention to choose delegates to the First Continental Congress, while in the same year he published A Summary View of the Rights of British America, a strong plea for the right to resist English taxation. In 1775, we find Jefferson a member of the colonial convention at which Patrick Henry, also a member, made the renowned war speech, Give me liberty or give me death. Those burning words of the Virginia order penetrated the heart of every farmer in Massachusetts, as they did the souls of the southern planters. In a few months, the royal government ceased to exist in Virginia, the governor, Dunmore, having retreated to a man of war, and Jefferson had become a member of the Continental Congress at its second session in Philadelphia, with the reputation of being one of the best political writers of the day, and an ardent patriot with very radical opinions. Even then, hopes had not entirely vanished of a reconciliation with Great Britain, but before the close of the year, the introduction of German mercenaries to put down the growing insurrection satisfied everybody that there was nothing left to the colonies but to fight, or tamely submit to royal tyranny. Preparations for military resistance were now made everywhere, especially in Massachusetts, and in Virginia, where Jefferson, who had been obliged by domestic afflictions to leave Congress in December, 
was most active in raising money for defense and in inspiring the legislature to set up a state government when jefferson again took his seat in congress may thirteenth seventeen seventy six he was put upon the committee to draft a declaration of independence composed as already noted of john adams benjamin franklin roger sherman and robert r livingston besides himself to him however was entrusted by the committee the labor and the honor of penning the draft which was adopted with trifling revision he was always very proud of this famous document and it was certainly effective among the ordinary people of america he is perhaps better known for this rather rhetorical piece of composition than for all his other writings put together it was one of those happy hits of genius which make a man immortal owing however no small measure of its fame to the historic importance of the occasion that it called forth it was publicly read on every fourth of july celebration for a hundred years it embodied the sentiments of a great people not disposed to criticism but ready to interpret in a generous spirit it had at the time a most stimulating effect at home and in europe was a revelation of the truth about the feeling in america from the fourth of july seventeen seventy six thomas jefferson became one of the most prominent figures identified with american independence by reason of his patriotism his abilities and advanced views of political principles though as inferior to hamilton in original and comprehensive genius as he was superior to him in the arts and foresight of a political leader he better understood the people than did his great political rival and more warmly sympathized with their conditions and aspirations he became a typical american politician not by force of public speaking but by dexterity in the formation and management of a party both patrick henry and john adams were immeasurably more eloquent than he but neither touched the springs of the american heart like this quiet modest peace-loving far-sighted politician since he more than any other man of the revolutionary period was jealous of aristocratic power Hamilton, Jay, Governor Morris were aristocrats who admired the English Constitution and would have established a more vigorous central government. Jefferson was jealous of central power in the hands of aristocrats. So, indeed, was Patrick Henry, whose outbursts of eloquence thrilled all audiences alike, the greatest natural order this country has produced, if Henry Clay may be accepted. But he was impractical and would not even endorse the Constitution, which was afterwards adopted, as not guarding sufficiently what were called natural rights and the independence of the states this ultimately led to an alienation between these great men and to the disparagement of henry by jefferson as a lawyer and statesman when he was the most admired and popular man in virginia and had only to say let this be law and it was law when he ruled by his magical eloquence the majority of the assembly and when his edicts were registered by that body with less opposition than that of the grand monarch himself from his subservient parliaments had he shown any fitness for military life patrick henry would doubtless have been entrusted with an important command but like jefferson his talents were confined to civic affairs alone moreover it is said that he was lazy and fond of leisure and that it was only when he was roused by powerful passions or a great occasion that his extraordinary powers bore all before him in an irresistible torrent as did the eloquence of mirabeau in the national convention contemplative men of studious habits and a philosophical cast of mind are apt to underrate the genius which sways a popular assembly hence jefferson thought henry superficial but in spite of the defects of his early education henry's attainments were considerable and the profoundest lawyers like wirt nicholas and jay acknowledged his great forensic ability washington always held him in great esteem and affection and certainly had henry been a shallow lawyer Washington, whose judgment of men was notably good, would not have offered him the post of Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, although, as Jefferson sneeringly said, he knew it would be refused. 
Jefferson declined a re-election to the Third Continental Congress, and in September 1776 retired to his farm, but only for a short time, since in October we find him in the Virginia House of Delegates, and chairman of the most important committees, especially that on the revision of the laws of the state. His work in the state legislature was more important than in Congress, since it was mainly through his influence that entails were swept away, and even the law of primogeniture. Instead of an aristocracy of birth and wealth, he would build up one of virtue and talent. He also assaulted state support of the Episcopal Church, which was in Virginia the established church, as an engine of spiritual tyranny, and took great interest in all matters of education, formulating a system of common schools, which, however, was never put into practice. He was also opposed to slavery, having the conviction that the day would come when the Negroes would be emancipated. He had before this tried to induce the Virginia lawmakers to legalize manumission, and in 1778 succeeded in having them forbid importation of slaves. Dr. James Scholler's 1893 Life of Jefferson says that the mitigation and final abolishment of slavery were among his dearest ambitions, and adduces in illustration the failure of his plan in 1784 for organizing the western territories, because it provided for free states south as well as north of the Ohio River and also his successful efforts as president to get Congress to abolish slave importation in 1806 and 07. His warnings as to what must happen if emancipation were not in some way provided for are familiar as fulfilled prophecy. After two years at state lawmaking, Jefferson succeeded Patrick Henry as governor of Virginia in the summer of 1779. But although his administration was popular, it was not marked as preeminently able. He had no military abilities for such a crisis in American affairs, nor even remarkable executive talent. He was a man of thought rather than of action. His happiest hours were spent in his library. He did not succeed in arousing the militia when the English were already marching to the seat of government, and when the Cherokee Indians were threatening hostilities on the southwestern border. Nor did he escape the censure of members of the legislature, which greatly annoyed and embittered him, so that he seriously thought of retiring from public life. In 1782, on the death of his wife, whom he tenderly loved, we find him again for a short time in Congress, which appointed him in 1784 as additional agent to France with Franklin and Adams to negotiate commercial treaties. On the return of Franklin, he was accredited sole minister to France to succeed that great diplomatist. He remained in France five years, much enamored with French society, as was Franklin, in spite of his Republican sentiments. He hailed with all the transport his calm nature would allow the French Revolution, and was ever after a warm friend to France until the Genet affair, when his eyes were partially opened to French intrigues and French arrogance. But the principles which the early apostles of revolution advocated were always near his heart. These he never repudiated. It was only the excesses of the revolution which filled him with distrust. In regard to the revolution on the whole, he took issue with Adams, Hamilton, Jay, and Morris, and with the sober judgment of the New England patriots. England he detested from first to last, and could see no good in her institutions, whether social, political, or religious. He hated the established church even more than royalty, as the nurse of both superstition and spiritual tyranny. Even the dissenters were not liberal enough for him. He would have abolished, if he could, all religious denominations and organizations. Above all things, he despised the etiquette and pomp of the English court as relics of medieval feudalism. To him there was nothing sacred in the person or majesty of a king who might be an idiot or a tyrant. He somewhere remarks that in all Europe not one king in twenty has ordinary intelligence. With such views, he was a favorite with the savants of the French Revolution, as much because they were semi-infidels as because they were opposed to feudal institutions. The great points of diplomacy had already been settled by Franklin, and he had not much to do in France, although his talents as a diplomatist were exceptional, owing to his coolness, his sagacity, his learning, and his genial nature. 
There was nothing austere about him, as there was in Adams. His manners, though simple, were courteous and gentlemanly. He was diligent in business, and was accessible to everybody. No American was more likely to successfully follow Franklin than he, from his desire to avoid broils and the pacific turn of his mind. In this respect he was much better fitted to deal with the Count de Virginie than was John Adams, whose suspicious and impetuous temper was always getting him into trouble, not merely with the French government, but with his associates. And yet Adams doubtless penetrated the ulterior designs of France with more sagacity than either Franklin or Jefferson. They now appear, from the concurrent views of historians, to have been to cripple England rather than to help America. It cannot be denied that the French government rendered timely and essential aid to the United States in their struggle with Great Britain, for which Americans should be grateful, whatever motives may have actuated it. Possibly Franklin, a perfect man of the world as well as an adroit diplomatist, saw that the French government was not entirely disinterested, but he wisely held his tongue and gave no offense, feeling that half a loaf was better than no loaf at all. But Adams could not hold his tongue for any length of time and gave vent to his feelings, so that in his mission he was continually snubbed and contrived to get himself hated both by Virginie and Franklin. He split his beetle when he should have splitted the log. He was honest and upright to an extraordinary degree, but a diplomatist should have tact, discretion, and prudence. Nor is it necessary that he should lie. Jefferson, like Franklin, had tact and discretion. It really mattered nothing in the final result, even if Virginie had in view only the interest of France. It is enough that he did assist the Americans to some extent. Adams was a grumbler, and looked at the motives of the act rather than the act itself, and was disposed to forget the obligation altogether, because it was conferred from other views than pure generosity. Moreover, it is gratefully remembered that many persons in France, like Lafayette, were generous and magnanimous toward the Americans, through genuine sympathy with a people struggling for liberty. In reference to the service that Jefferson rendered to his country as minister to France, we notice his persistent efforts to suppress the piracy of the Barbary states on the Mediterranean. Although he loved peace, he preferred to wage an aggressive war on these pirates rather than to submit to their insults and robberies, as most of the European states did by giving them tribute. But the new American Confederation was too weak financially to support his views, and the piracy and tribute continued until Captain Decatur bombarded Tripoli and chastised Algiers during Jefferson's presidency, 1803 and 04. As minister, Jefferson also attempted to remove the shackles on American trade, which, however, did not meet the approval of the Morrises and other protectionists and monopolists in the tobacco trade. End of section 16.